Hello and welcome to Lost in Sci-Fi and Fantasy. I'm your host Leo and today we are going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park. So real quick before we continue, this is my second, well technically third, but mostly second attempt at recording this episode. I had literally finished the episode and my recording software crashed. It was running suspiciously well, I was feeling. And then, of course, I stop recording and go to save it. I literally hit save as, typed in, like, the file name and got it just to start saving and then it crashed. So, uh, I'm going to have to kind of reconfigure how I talk about this episode. So, I'm going to take take the plot synopsis and I'm just going to fucking throw that away. <laughs> just, it's gone. Because... As it is, in, in the first attempt when I was recording this, I felt that it's kind of unnecessary. I do truly feel that most people listening to this have probably, you know, watched the movie. So a plot synopsis isn't very necessary for it. So I am going to just kind of talk about the bits that I love, my history with it, and just kind of what Jurassic Park means to me. So we're, we're shaking it up. <laughs> so it might end up being shorter than it was. It was about 30 to 40 minutes overall for this part of the episode, uh, you know, Sam's challenge update. So it might end up being a little bit shorter, but otherwise, um, yeah. So some of you might have noticed that this month is kind of getting Michael Crichton-y. And that was unintentional, but I've decided to go ahead and roll with it. <laughs> so all of June is now going to be a, a Michael Crichton thing. So what happened is I chose Westworld at random, uh, then I decided to follow it up immediately with Jurassic Park because it's the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park. I have to celebrate it. And also, at the end of this month, the book I'll be reading for the challenge is Sphere, which pretty much coincides, well, it coincides really well with pretty much the last week of this month. So I decided, okay, I'll I'll watch Sphere to go with it. <laughs> so that's three days. So what, what's, what's the one that goes in between Jurassic Park and Sphere? So I decided to do Twister. It's a movie that it's a movie that Michael Crichton wrote, and it's one that it's a movie that I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, but we'll, we'll I'll save talking about it for next week. So let's go ahead and get get to my history with Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park for me has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. I genuinely don't remember when Jurassic Park started for me. It's just kind of always been there. I used to watch it on VHS uh, all the time. Then I would, when I got like I think it was a PS2, my was gifted a, the DVDs for Christmas, uh, and I would watch the DVDs. I'd still watch the VHSs sometimes when I was watching a bunch of VHSs. Like I would do a Scooby Doo and Jurassic Park marathon, and then I, I would watch it endlessly. And when the DVDs came out, in the special features was like the making of like behind the scenes things, and there was like a talk with. Michael Crichton, the author of the book. And that was the first time that I learned that Jurassic Park was based off of a book uh, after having already watched the film like 10 times at that point. <laughs> you know, sometimes you learn things fresh. That's what got me into reading. Because at the time, I was struggling with, with reading, like getting into reading, especially like long books. I had attempted to read things like The Hobbit before, but I just couldn't get into it. Uh, I tried Harry Potter couldn't get into it. Uh, mostly at the time, I was reading books with like a lot of pictures in it, like um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid was one book series I was reading around the time, as well as uh, 
R.L. Stein's Rotten School. Yeah, so th- those were like the main books I would read. And they had like pictures and a lot of breaks, and it took me forever to read them, even with you know them being fairly easy books. I just had a lot of trouble getting into reading. So when I learned that my favorite movie had a book, I I wanted to read it. Come hell or high water, I wanted to read it. No matter how long it was, no matter how complicated it was, I would make myself understand it. I would make myself enjoy it, damn it. Uh, I was a little bit worried, but for the most part, it was fine. Sometime shortly later, I got the book and I read it. It took me quite a while to read it. It was, a, at least for me, it was like the longest book I had read at the time. It was my first proper like novel I think part of the reason I got into it is because it felt like I wasn't supposed to. It is a dark book. And technically, so are the movies, but the movies are watered down quite a bit in comparison to to the book. The book's quite gruesome. But, you know, it felt a bit taboo to be reading such a, a, a gory book and whatnot. And, you know, it, it, it was comfortable. And it got me into reading. After I finished reading Jurassic Park, I tried tackling The Hobbit again, and I was actually able to read it. And from then on, I was actually able to, like, read books. <laughs> I mean, I still had trouble. I still do have trouble sometimes, like, getting into a book properly. But it, it, it was the kind of introduction to books for me. And Jurassic Park is one of those things. It, it gets you inspired and makes you interested in things because of how they do, do it. Like, um, it got me really into special effects and, like, how movies are made as well. The behind-the-scenes stuff. Because of the techniques that they used, the using CGI for like the herd scenes and the like wide shots of monsters or dinosaurs, you know, it, it inspires inspires you to get into like things like special effects and movie making and how how it works. And the the like animatronics are always so amazing to like see how how they were made and the, the troubles that they had with the animatronics as well. It, it it is something to kind of inspire you though the film isn't without its flaws of course you know there's plot threads that kind of are introduced but drop there's a lot of a very minor nitpick uh, that i have with the film is that there's a lot of scene incontinuity like when the tyrannosaurus is attacking and alan helps get lex out from under the car there's a lot of jumping around in that scene you'll you'll notice like he'll go from like behind her to next to her them being like center mass on the car to off to the side on the car they they jump around a lot there or when alan climbs the tree to get to tim he gets up there but then when he's like climbing down with tim they go from like right by the car to under the car and then when the car starts, like, dropping, like, when they finally start, like, actually trying to climb down, instead of being, like, directly under the car, they're now, like, a couple feet under the car. But again, that's that's a very minor nitpick. My, the one that annoys me kind of the most is the dropped plot of the, the sick Triceratops. In the book, it's a sick Stegosaurus, but they get so close to actually having the plot line fully in there that I don't know why they dropped it. I think it was to insert a poop joke is why they they dropped the actual conclusion to the plot. But they... So in in the book and the film, they come across a sick triceratops on their tour and they hop out of the cars to investigate. And while they're investigating, Ellie gets like really into it. I think it's both Ellie and Alan 
are getting super into like trying to figure out the thing in the book. But in the movie, it's mostly Ellie who, you know, notices the issues and in, does a little investigation. And she, in both the book and the film, comes to the conclusion that it's probably the West Indian lilac. It, like the symptoms work out, the, the cycle's kind of there. But, you know, there's no evidence on the plants of them having been eaten. And the vet, uh, Dr. Harding, is constantly saying, no, it can't be the West Indian lilac. They don't eat it. They stay away from it. But in the book, she d she's able to determine that it's like, that it's gizzard stones. So gizzard stones are a stone that some birds and I think some lizards um, swallow to help process like plant matter. So that they'll swallow the stones and when they eat stuff... Uh, the plants have to go through the stones to like go through and it helps kind of process their food so that they don't necessarily have to chew. And in the book, it's determined that the stones that the stegosauruses are picking up are right under the West Indian lilac bush. So they're the reason it's happening in the cycle is that they'll go away, get better, probably pick up stones that aren't, in West Indian lilac, or they they'll pick, or the entire cycle goes through, and then they you know pick up new stones here, and they get sick again. So it's a cycle as they kind of move through their their paddock. In the film, they get very close to like having that final part in the film. When she's looking at the West Indian lilac bush, she notices the stones under the bush. She even picks one up. And she's holding a stone while she's still trying to figure it out next to the Triceratops. Like, they had the answer literally in her hand. It frustrates me every time now, or it's going to, because I literally noticed it this watch-through, that she's holding a stone in her hand. But yeah, that, that, that's one of the things that frustrated me the most. Um, some, some really fun things. I do like how the plot overall flows. So the big flow is what I want to call the, I guess, the whimsy and the horror. So, like, the first half of the film is, like, the whimsy. They're going through the park. They're seeing the dinosaurs. They're seeing the majesty. They're constantly hearing John Hammond's catchphrase that he spared no expense. Then there's the tipping point. Like, as things are starting to go a bit wrong, you know... The, as they go on the tour, the Dilophosaurus doesn't show up. The Tyrannosaurus doesn't show up. And then the guests hop out of the car because they see a sick Triceratops. And then the storm that they were hoping was going to, you know, skirt around them hits. And then Nedry decides to enact his plan. And things start, you know, going sideways. And then they go sideways very, very fast. The Tyrannosaurus gets out. Nedry gets killed. Um, the kids get, well, Timmy gets chucked over the side of a cliff while the others have to, you know, are trying to climb down the cliff to get out of the way of the Tyrannosaurus. There's, you know, the fall. And then there's like the slight break as, you know, the attacks calm down. There's a slight spike when they get chased by the Gallimimus and the Gallimimus gets attacked by the... Tyrannosaurus 
Then it slightly tips again as they settle in. But here we're kind of in the 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 terror flow, the the horror flow, because then there's like the bunker, and then the kitchen, and whatnot. You know, the there's still a lot of tense scenes going on with the softer scenes uh, in between. Yeah, I think overall the only thing that's a little bit jarring at times can be the the main moments of calm. For example, the the lunch where the, where the thing that's annoyed me um, every time I've watched the film, uh, where they don't eat their lunch, like the meal looks delicious, the meal looks fantastic. It's it's like it's fish, but it looks really good. But they just ignore it and complain about the park, which is fair. They have their worries. But it annoys me that they don't touch it. Like, <laughs> it makes me sad every time. But yeah, so in that, you know, it's them complaining about the park. Uh, the only one on his side is the lawyer. Then the other moment of calm is after Ellie comes back from trying to rescue the kids, finding out that, you know, they're now stuck in the park with Alan. She comes back very calm to John Hammond who's chillin' eating ice cream. They have, like, a philosophical talk. This is, like, when the main fight, like, the sorry, the main attack has happened and things have kind of cooled off a bit and we're getting ready to start ramping up again. But we're, we're in the lull, the breather. <laughs> Just a nice little space after a major action set piece, you know, where, where things have calmed for a second before it heats up again. The calm before the secondary storm, I guess. Those those particular scenes are kind of annoying, and then I think there might be one more. No, they got rid. They didn't add too much. I mean, they have they have Malcolm being kind of philosophical a little bit, but not really. Like in the book, he spends like half of it uh, drugged out in bed. <laughs> so you know, hey, but yeah. The the special effects are amazing, of course. Uh, though some of them are starting to show their age. As much as it hurts me to say it, though, some of them are starting to show their age. For example, the scene at the beginning of the film when they encounter the Brachiosaurus, on Blu-ray, it looks very plasticky. <laughs> the T-Rex still holds up pretty well, uh, though uh, the it in the rearview mirror has always been a little bit awkward, you know? But otherwise, the CGI Tyrannosaurus Rex tends to hold up fairly well. Especially, I think, even in like the full daylight, the, the Tyrannosaur model works really good. The CGI works best from a distance in low light or when they put extra effort into it like they did with the T-Rex. Because <laughs> you're going to see it more than once. <laughs> the Velociraptors are okay. Some of them, and sometimes, are a little bit uh, meh. But, like, a lot of the things are mostly animatronics. This is, I think, the film that has the most animatronics. They start to kind of rely on them less as the films go on until after Jurassic World, where they started ramping it back up a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, the special effects are still amazing, especially for the time. It was very, you know, they were trying to do a lot, a lot more CGI than... Uh, had really been done at the time on 
you know, fairly complex creatures. It's one of those things that, you know, is super, super difficult to do, especially at the time. And it still looks pretty good, though I'm very curious to see what a a re-rendering would be like. I, I believe, I think it's Corridor Crew who do, like, special effects things. They've taken a pass at, um at updating the CGI in Jurassic Park. I haven't watched that video yet. I might check it out um, after this, you know, just to take a look, to see, you know, if they really do do better or if they are still not good. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah, I mean, Jurassic Park is still probably one of my favorite franchises. Even, like, the bad ones, like the bad Jurassic Park movies, I still love. Like, I loved Dominion. I liked Fallen Kingdom. I, I quite liked Jurassic World. I like Jurassic Park 3. I really like Lost World. And, of course, I love Jurassic Park. I, I really do love this franchise, and it's something that's stuck with me for a long, long time. <laughs> now, sometime uh, in the future, I do intend to talk about the book. It'll probably have to wait until after I finish the challenge. I do intend to read it uh, after the challenge. It'll probably be the first thing I read. But yeah, I I highly recommend watching this film. I highly recommend reading the book. I will talk about the book in the future, probably you know after I'm done with the challenge. So somewhere around September, October-ish, maybe? We'll see. Speaking of the challenge, let us go ahead and get into the challenge update. Alright, update time. So, I have finished House of Hades and I've started Blood of Olympus. And I'm going to be talking about, you know, how I felt about House of Hades and everything and whatnot. But I do want to real quick start with how the update's going to work for next week. So next week, regardless of whether or not I start Sphere, I am not going to talk about Sphere in the update, because that's kind of a big important bit of the following week's episode. But since we will have finished the first, sorry, the second um, block of books, uh, we'll go ahead and do a kind of look back, you know, see how things have been going, kind of thing. And yeah, so look look forward to that uh, next week. <laughs> but as for this week. So I said in my YouTube Shorts update that I felt that this is probably my favorite of the Heroes of Olympus books. And I, I think that that's fairly true. It's the one that I remember the most, and it's the one that I find the most interesting because it delves into a topic that we've been kind of curious about for like a long time in the books. You know, what's Tartarus like? What is this pit like and you know we get to explore it and see all the different things happening in it uh, I will say that there is a bit of an issue technically with the entire Heroes of Olympus series that it does a decent job of hiding until this book so for the Heroes of Olympus series you kind of need to read the su supplemental uh, thing called the Demigod Files. Percy Jackson's Demigod Files. 
in that there are three or four short stories that you know are are heavily linked to the the heroes of olympus books there's the one where percy and uh charles beckendorf hunt down the bronze dragon that is comes to be known as festus um there's the one where percy nico and thalia are trying to recover a sword that hades lost but it's actually uh Persephone had it commissioned and it got stolen. But in that, Percy, Nico, and Thalia fight the Titan... I can't pronounce his name. It's like Ichthyus or something like that. But he gets dipped in the river Lith, I think it is, or Leith. It's the one that erases your memory. And Percy renames him Bob and... You know, sends him away to, you know, hang out in the palace in the underworld. And those, that's the one that kind of is the most important. Festus, you could kind of see it as being something that happened in the background um, that you didn't really have to pay attention to. It was something that was happening with Charles Beckendorf. So you don't know whether or not it, it actually was happening during it or if it had happened long before it. You don't know. It, it's hard to tell. But with Bob, you kind of have to have read that story because there's a lot to do with it. It does a decent job of like catching you up and getting you caught up on like the main parts of it, but it is a very weird to to see that. <laughs> uh, as for uh, secrets, I said that you know, oh, in that one, Hazel had a secret and whatnot. For the most part. It actually does probably the best of them in resolving the secrets almost immediately. So it, they're no longer that big of an issue within this story. So you don't have to worry about it. Especially since, you know, two of the characters can't really have secrets because they're not really doing anything. They're stuck in Tartarus just trying to get out. As for the pattern, I did come to recognize that there is actually a pattern between these final two books in this series. The pattern is no longer, you know, keeping strictly to, you know, a certain set of characters and looping that cycle. It trans it kind of changes into going back and forth between two scenes or settings. So in House of Hades, it's going back and forth between um between Percy and Annabeth in Tartarus, and everyone else up above. And we, we toggle between them every so often. Uh, well, literally every character cycle is... It's pretty much a very small cycle. Because it goes above, below, above, below. But it will switch who the below is. So you won't get Annabeth, you know, every other one. It'll be... Annabeth, then say Hazel, then say, then it'll go to Percy, then say Leo, that kind of thing. And it'll, it'll toggle back and forth throughout the rest of the book. And it's, it's, it works. Uh, it was nice to, you know, have some kind of pattern. It, it doesn't help me any because I can't really do anything with that. Um, in 
uh, Blood of Olympus, the pattern, because in this book, Blood of Olympus, they toggle between uh, Nico and Reyna on their way to take the Athena Parthenos uh, back to Camp Half-Blood, and then everyone else, save for Percy and Annabeth. They are not perspective characters in the fifth book at all, from what I can tell. And fair enough, I mean, they had an entire book series, sorry, not book series, well, yeah, they had an entire book series, plus uh, they also had an entire uh, book in this series going over what they were seeing. Um, But yeah, so, but back to House of Hades, it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting it also helps push through the issues that you might have had with, like, Mark of Athena. You know, the weird, like, love triangle thing between uh, Leo, Hazel, and Frank gets resolved. You know, it, it melts all the weird stuff that wasn't really working away, which is nice. Um, there is also a bit of a weird thing with that happens to Frank that I don't fully understand. So Frank is given a blessing from his father. Now, when we last saw a blessing from uh, Ares slash Mars, it was in the fifth book of the Percy Jackson Olympian series when Clarice defeats the Dracon. So, in this, one, it's a little bit uh, underwhelming seeing as he's slaughtering an entire city's worth of relatively passive animals. Sure, they're poisonous and whatnot, but they tend to be harmless to humans and, to some extent, demigods, except for the fact that they kind of get in the way. So, he has to slaughter all of these relatively peaceful animals, and he's given a blessing from his father. He successfully defeats all the animals, save for one that needs to be turned into a snake, and that's why he's doing this. Uh, but something happened during the blessing. Uh, Frank pretty much grows a few inches and loses all of his, like, chubbiness, I guess. And so he becomes, like, fairly muscular and taller and whatnot. And at first I thought, oh, maybe it's similar to the blessing that Aphrodite gave Piper. And in that, with that blessing, you know, she became extra beautiful. You know, her hair wasn't choppy. She had, like, I think it was, like, super subtle makeup. And then her clothes also changed. For some reason, it seems to be permanent. And it's not really explained why. The The, the analogy everyone keeps making is it's as if he was, he transformed into, insert big, strong animal here. Uh, and parts of it stayed. And I guess theoretically that could be like the weird side effect that happened while he was transforming under the blessing of Mars. I don't know. Then he gets another blessing and a field promotion. And that slightly doesn't make sense later on. Because, so the issue that they're having uh, later on is they summoned an army of the dead and they're trying to control it. They need 
someone they need a child of Hades slash Pluto to raise the dead, and then they need a like officer in the Roman army to control them. And when Jason tries to control them, they don't listen to him because they see him as having been tainted, as not being pure Greek anymore. And that's the thing that he should have realized a lot sooner, seeing as literally like a few chapters before that, he had pretty much renounced his Romanness and accepted the fact that he was, he wanted to be with the Greek camp and whatnot. So he should have saw that coming, but he still assumed that since he technically had the title of Praetor, and whatnot that he should he should be able to control them. Instead, what he does is he gives Frank a field promotion, and that works for some reason. Um, you would think that since the ghosts don't see Jason as Greek, they wouldn't see him as a praetor, and thus wouldn't see him as having the power to give a field promotion. But it worked, I guess. <laughs> it seemed fine. The journey through Tartarus is probably the best part of the book because it gives us a look at Percy and Annabeth's relationship. They they are able to get each other through it because they are together. And they, you know, they stick close together and they have just a bunch of lovely moments. There's a very funny moment in the book where uh, Annabeth wants to write a note and send it up uh, back to Camp Half-Blood to try to get them to retrieve the Athena Parthenos. And, you know, she's like, what, do we have a pen? And Percy's like, well, I have, you know, Riptide. I, I've never tried to write with it. And he, like, uncaps it. And she's like, try putting it at the other end. And he does, and it becomes a pen. <laughs> Which brings up some questions, like, is it an infinite pen? Does that work? Or, like, as you use it, does it, you know, harm the blade somehow? It brings up some questions and some interesting things. Uh, let's see. There's, there's a lot of things that I want to talk about primarily next week during next week's update. Some things I want to talk about next week besides, you know, how the challenge is going and uh, how it feels to have now read ten books... <laughs> Plus a partial that I... Uh, uh, and, you know, things like that. But I also do want to talk about, say, like the Percy Jackson series that's coming up. The uh, the TV series coming to Disney Plus sometime soon. He's been very... Uh, Rick Warden's been very cagey about, like, the release date of the, the TV series. Uh, Disney Plus labels it as 2024... But technically, based off of the general progress of how things are going, it could be done as early as December, I feel. So it, it'll probably be like... It kind of depends on some of the other things going on around the time. Because Disney Plus likes to try to keep certain things separated. Whether or not it'll be a weekly show or just a whole drop show, we don't know. But I, I do want to talk more about, like, the Percy Jackson TV series and uh, adaptations in general uh, next week during that when I'm shoving as much of Sphere off in, into the next week as possible. Uh, but yeah, 
it, it's it's a very interesting time, honestly. <laughs> the overall, I do feel like the the reading is going fine. These books are very interesting, very fun. There's some things that every time I hit it on it, it it annoys the hell out of me. But technically, there's nothing wrong with it. So it feels a little bit weird to complain about it. But it's just one of those experiences that you hit upon when reading an entire set of books by the same author back to back. So, yeah, again, there's more details that we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, there is one more thing that I would like to talk about as it pertains to this book. And that is The Return of Calypso. So, her return is foreshadowed multiple times in the throughout the book, actually. Um, when Leo and Jason are in Bologna, hunting down two dwarves that like to steal things, it it pretty much alludes to Calypso's return there. Then, later on, in Tartarus, when Percy and Annabeth are fighting uh, these demons that dispel, dispense sorry, uh, curses upon you as when you attack them, uh, he comes across one that causes Annabeth to pretty much not be able to perceive Percy's existence, uh, causing her to go into great despair. She cannot see him. She cannot hear him, uh, and she cannot touch him. Like, every time he tries to, like, grab her to reassure her, she teleports, like, further away. And that is Calypso's curse upon Percy. Well, technically, it's a curse upon Percy, but mostly a curse upon Annabeth, funnily enough. And he... It gets cured when Bob saves them. But he's, you know, he's like, nah, she wouldn't do that. And then when Leo eventually ends up on her island, it's, you, you're shown just kind of how bitter she is about the situation she's been put in. You know, in the fourth book of Percy Jackson and the Olympians, uh, Battle of the Labyrinth, she seems okay. She's annoyed, but she seems okay. Uh, but here she's pissed off because one, she feels like it's a cosmic joke, uh, that she was sent Leo and the whole idea about Leo being sent there is that she couldn't almost certainly never fall in love with him is what they were assuming. But she, she does eventually end up falling in love with him and their romance is, I don't know, I find it cute. They annoy each other, but they come to, uh, love each other. And that's fun. It's, uh, from annoyance to general acceptance to romance. And that is nice. And Leo's whole goal, pretty much from that point on, is to get back to her and help get her off the island. Because the whole issue and part of the reason that she's frustrated and something that I didn't fully understand, like, how does she know that this was the case, but... Percy, at the end of the fifth book, makes the gods promise to free her, to not blame 
He makes the gods promise to free her and not blame the children of the Titans for the sins of their parents. You know, just because they are the children doesn't mean that they need to be punished quite so severely. And he makes them promise to set her free, but he never actually checks up on whether or not they did. And this is part of what causes her resentment is that he just kind of forgot about her. And Percy, in the fifth book, again, we'll talk about more next week, but he he does, like, apologize to Leo because the fact that he was on uh, Calypso's island spread really fast around the ship, and Percy's like, look, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> I just forgot. But, yeah... But I do like their little romance and whatnot. Um, and I'm excited to see what happens uh, later on with it. Like, does it actually show it? Or is that another thing that just gets sidelined to supplemental material? That's kind of, like, it's fi- kind of funny that Rick Rorden seems to have the Kingdom Hearts approach to supplemental material. Which is, no, it's very important. You should probably read it. <laughs> Because, like, with Kingdom Hearts, people looked at, um, people looked at, uh, Chain of Memories and Birth by Sleep as side games, supplemental material that aren't important. You know, you don't need to play them. But the answer is, no, you, you very much need to play them, and you probably should. At the very least, watch the cutscenes so that you know where this, what happens in the story. Because they, they are quite important. And, you know... Rick Rorden seems to have a similar thing because the Demigod Files isn't technically a main release. It's supposed to be like a cutesy, like most of its interviews with with the campers kind of thing. But but yeah, no, he he decided, nah, we'll also put some short stories. I will say, though, that a slight um, a slight conceit I'll give it, is that in the initial release of the House of Hades book, the short story was included in the book. Like, it was at the end of the book, you could read the short story and get caught up on the exploits of Bob. The same thing I don't think was given to Festus and the first book. But, again, I do feel that Festus is a slightly different situation. Festus is, like, a dragon... It's a problem that the the uh, Hephaestus campers have been having. You don't necessarily need to know too much about like his introduction because it, it's relatively small, and it's explained decently well in that book. With but with Bob, you feel like you're missing a lot of information when they when they're talking about something as big and important as the the defeat of a titan you know <laughs> it's it's very weird but anyway with that said uh that's pretty much the update for this week uh next week the update will be just it'll it'll be only covering blood of olympus as well as you know just a little retrospective about how things are going and whatnot and then i do also again want to talk about the the TV series and potential ad- future adaptation of this stuff. Uh, and next week, 
since I, I've kind of pre-planned the rest of June, I do know what is next. We are going to be talking about Twister, because we are continuing our Michael Crichton-themed month, um, for some reason, and we'll be talking about Twister, the the movie about tornadoes. <laughs> but anywho, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, I will talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.